0: Welcome to CropWatch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, good morning and welcome to another edition of Fridays with a Scientist. Today, I have a treat for you of Dr. Judah Cohen from Varisk Atmospheric and Environmental Research. Judah, how are you this morning?
1: Good, good, thank you. Eric, how about yourself?
0: Good. It's uh, a little cooler this morning. It's probably seasonal i think are supposed to be like 52 today for high which is still above average but it's a few degrees above average instead of 20 like we've been most of the week <laughs> so just waiting for uh some moisture we've been extremely dry here this fall and um at this point i don't care if it's uh two inches of rain or two i would, I would take two feet of snow <laughs> right now yeah uh oh. Just a little bit of background on you. Uh, where are you from? Uh, How did you kind of get interested in snowstorms and polar outbreaks and all that sort of thing?
1: Well, as long as I can remember, I was a snow lover. I was just got very excited, uh, you know, about the snow. I would always listen to weather forecasts, you know, in the hope of hearing, uh, you know, prediction of a snowstorm coming. Maybe get a school day, a snow day you know, off from school. And that'd be an extra bonus. Um, I guess that got me kind of just interested in weather all around. And I especially liked forecasting. I don't know why, but, um, you know, maybe the challenge of it, especially predicting snowstorms is, especially here on the East Coast, I don't know if in the plains, maybe a little easier. But here, you know, all everything has to be perfect to get a snowstorm and uh and the forecasts were notoriously bad you know back in the 70s and 80s when i was growing yeah. up but it's, you know but that that's still the case today
0: sir so, sure. was there a particular snowstorm that just really motivated you to want to study the weather
1: well Where's i mean the, one the water in the I,
0: back in the 70s right
1: yeah, I mean, one that I remember, real. I mean, there was a stretch. There, I, this is New York City. I lived in Brooklyn, so there was a stretch there, like a bit of a snow drought. We weren't getting any big storms. Um, but then, uh, what broke the drought was uh, seventy-eight. So we had two, 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 you know, sizable storms. One was like, um, I think it was like January twenty-second or so, seventy-eight. It was, uh, actually, President Jimmy Carter was giving State of the Union that day, and they they have these shots of the White House, and you can see the snow falling there. So I knew, thought it was coming our way, and it was, um, I'd say, you know, 20 inches or so, Um, and it was not predicted. It was completely unexpected.
0: Like, not predicted at all, or it was like- Well, it was
1: predicted to be rain. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so and it snowed instead, and I think they kept predicting a changeover. It just never happened. Um, and then the one that really I think you know was more of I an mean, historical event was the February sixth, like sixth through eighth, nineteen seventy eight. That I mean is is really famous where I live now in New England in Boston. Probably the greatest blizzard, you know on record in, you know, it's not officially the, the high biggest snowfall in Boston, but I think for this area and Southeast New England, um, you know, there are like reports of like 50, 58 plus inches in Rhode Island. And even in the Western suburbs of Boston it was 30 to 40 inches, pretty widespread. So, yeah, that's, uh, but that's- I, I was in Brooklyn and it was about two feet there. Uh, but that was like, to me, I felt like for the first time, in my life, I had been transported to a new world, you know, like a different planet. Just seeing the urban you know, landscape kind of turn into this almost like desert, you know. You had, you know, the the like the snow dunes, you know, just and just the snow blowing down the street, you know, unimpeded and just everything covered. It was uh, it left me with a, you know, just an incredible impression. It was so, you know, the snow was so clean and you know it doesn't last long in New York <laughs> that way but <laughs> pristine and just to see i just you know to me it was like magical really a magical thing and um yeah the only other time that i witnessed in New York anyway where i felt like it was completely transformed into a whole different um you know landscape or was in January early January 1996 i think it was like the 5th and the 6th of January also, that that was the biggest snowstorm I probably may have ever witnessed, thirty plus oh, sure. inches. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I just you know those th- I I just loved it and wanted to know about s- snow. I don't I don't you know I'm not a snow physicist, but obviously still studying snow.
0: Were you a skier?
1: I, I I do love skiing, so uh, that tracks. Yeah, I, uh, so New England's nice. Uh, you know, I, living in Boston, get up to New Hampshire, Vermont pretty easily. Maine's a little further, but obviously, uh, you know, the best skiing in the is in the Rockies. But
0: uh, yeah, we're we're a lot closer to the Rockies than we are to. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, I haven't been out west in a while. I used to go, but uh, yeah, maybe this year.
0: You had good snowpack last year, which is great because. Um, that was kind of the first step toward eradicating drought in you know, the front range in that part of the country. So yeah, back in the seventies, you know, that 78 snowstorms you're, you're referring to, um, uh, you know, on this part of the country, we didn't have a whole lot of snow that winter, but that was the longest stretch of sub-freezing temperatures we've ever had. It was like 45 straight days with highest below freezing here in, uh, Lincoln and Omaha. I think it was probably similar in Des Moines and, you know, points north, um, so you guys you published a paper recently, I forget the name of the journal, but uh, where you were showing that the cold extremes have actually really not changed a whole lot in recent decades because of arctic Do You care to um elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so that was Earth Environmental Communications. Uh it'd be embarrassing. I know it's EEC. <laughs> See, the Earth <laughs> and Environmental Communications or are... let me uh Quickly. Yeah. So, I mean, I've gotten, uh, so I, I've studied uh, communications, earth and environment, CEE. So um, I I started my career, my research career, I guess for real <laughs> uh, looking at how snow cover can impact the climate. And I came out, kind of came up with this discovery and still somewhat controversial 25 years later, that snow in the higher latitudes, and I focused on Eurasian snow cover, so snow cover extent, not snow depth, but I think snow depth also plays a similar role. The snow cover is easier to observe and measure So uh, from satellites. So, um, yeah, so we came with this idea that how much snow cover how extensive the snow cover is in eurasia in the fall can inf- can actually be a kind of predictor for our winter weather here in the uh, eastern US so mo- east of the rockies basically it doesn't didn't this signal was much weaker in the western US and um and then i kind of you know noticed that there was this interesting trend in snow cover in the fall months across eurasia and the same thing is similar actually in north america as well that it was increasing the trend was for an increasing and um one of my groupies there trying to call me so excuse me Oh, no, that's okay um, <laughs> uh but yeah an increase yeah, yeah. so i mean as and I, I i don't yeah i know this is uh media and you got to be quick here so and then let me try to get to the point. So, there was this interesting trend where snow cover was increasing, and that was leading to what I, you know, based on my theory that so I, the idea was if the snow cover is more extensive in Eurasia in the fall, that could lead to colder, snowier winters in the Eastern US. If the snow cover is less, less than below normal in extent, that would lead to a milder, less snowier winters. So, if you had this increasing trend, as, as I was pointing out, that should lead to colder, snowier winters. And there was a stretch uh, uh, some, from the mid early to mid nineteen nineties till when I was doing this work in the mid two thousand and teens. There was like this very clear cooling trend, and you know snowfall in many places in, in the eastern U.S. were increasing. And I kind of then just bundled it together with this other idea that um, there was less sea ice. Um, you know uh, in the arctic right because the arctic was warming very rapidly that was linked to less sea ice and it seemed to also have a similar type in fact where well the extent of sea ice was the opposite of snow cover so snow cover more extensive led to colder winter less sea ice led to colder winters so um and at the time there was people were really observing and this was predicted by the models the uh, our global climate models the dynamical models that with uh climate change Uh, the warming wouldn't be uniform across the globe, but rather it would be uh, accelerated in the Arctic and referred to as Arctic amplification. So I kind of bundled this whole idea of under the umbrella of Arctic amplification, which included both less sea ice, but more snow cover. Um, And I know you're a guy that appreciates lake effects. So I I kind of think of it as like an opposite lake effect. As more sea ice was melting, there was more open water, Available. So when you had a cold wind blowing over this now newly revealed and opened uh, sea, uh, seas, you know, uh, ocean water instead of ice, that could lead to lake effect across uh, the higher latitudes. So both Siberia, let's say, and Canada and Alaska. Um, so this was all under one of the umbrella of Arctic avocation. So you had war- rapidly warming temperatures, but less sea ice and more snow cover. Uh, and that could contribute to uh, colder winters, because it was there was a surprisingly, you know, and this is not controversial, there was this, the models were, pre- and the expectation was pretty much that winters would get milder, uh, there would be less snow in the mid-latitudes, including many parts in the US, you know, with climate change, and then all of a sudden, there was this cooling being observed, you know, and it wasn't just like a one year or two, um, but you know, multiple decades. So this cooling trend and how to how to explain it. So a lot of the field just said, well, there's a lot of noise in the system what we refer to as natural variability. But I said, no, there's a there's a physical cause for it, that this Arctic amplification, which included less sea ice and more snow cover, was contributing. And what we're seeing in total. And again, I don't. I'm not arguing. Some people say that I'm arguing winters are going to get continuously colder. I'm not arguing that, but they're not warming as fast as the models had predicted. Sure, yeah. You know, so, the reason is for that because it's more, it's not all just you know, um, this very simple idea of climate change leads to warmer you know temperatures, which leads to milder winters and less snow. But that is one factor. But there are mo- other factors that are important, one of them being our that can contribute to colder winters and, and and more snowfall. And what we're observing is a combination of those two factors that can, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, cancel each other, balance each other out.
0: Yeah. no, what you're describing to me actually makes really good sense. I mean, we've seen, you know, a significant decrease in sea ice in the last 40, 45 years. It probably started accelerating, what, in the mid to late 90s, probably around the time you started seeing this increased signal for snow cover yeah. Eurasia. Oh,
1: exactly coincided, yeah,
0: and yeah. I mean, the I, intuitively you would think, oh, winters will continuously get warmer and warmer. In while we have had a lot of warm winter months the last two decades, we've also still had some significant cold. um Certainly, in the eastern two thirds of the U.S. that would certainly would not have been explained um by a lot of these models. And it seems to me that even in a lot of just last ten years, the Forecast, at least a dynamic of uh, seasonal forecast models will show, oh, just warm, 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 warm. Yeah. And generally hitting it seems like in the another seasons, but in the winter, uh, that seems like that's failed quite a bit.
1: Yeah, no, the models are are almost always too warm in their forecast. They're, they're really the big exception, especially across North America of the past 20 years. The one exception I would say is the winter of 2019, 2020. There, I mean, it was pretty much as, as as warmer, maybe even warmer than miles, but 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 that's really the the one exception that I know of. Where and but basically, and we showed this in a paper that the the model forecasts and the observations are diverging in the winter months, where the miles are getting much warmer and continuously getting even warmer than what's being observed. Uh, also, getting back to that paper, so this idea that Arctic amplification can contribute to winter weather is very controversial in the climate community. And people say, no, that you got it all wrong. Actually, Arctic amplification just should, should lead to much uh, milder winters. And and Ar- we should especially see it in Arctic outbreaks that those are gonna mo- you know, kind of moderate or warm the fastest because the Arctic is the source region for Arctic outbreaks, right? It makes sense. Or cold air outbreaks, however you wanna think about it. So the one impact we should see from Arctic amplification is kind of this amelioration or the moderation of these are the, the most extreme cold. But of course, if I'm arguing that, well, you know, Arctic amplification can contribute to colder, you know, colder weather, I'm not going to say colder winds, but these episodes of colder weather, you know, that that may kind of, then this idea of that it's going to lead to this very, you know, uh, warming of these, uh, the, especially the extreme cold that, you know, that may be true. And we showed that actually very surprisingly, um, Cold extremes have pretty much stayed steady mm-hmm. in the in the U, in the central and eastern U.S. Uh, and actually, since 2000, they've been coming these extreme cold days. So the coldest five percent of the, the days, uh, you know, through it through a winter season, we have 90 days. So let's say the five coldest days of that winter. Uh, but but look at five, you know, uh, average over since going back to 1960, and then the period of Arctic amplification, which started post 1990. There's, there's actually in, in North America there's been an increasing trend in the, in the freak not only is the magnitude of those cold days not getting warmer but actually they're increasing in the in the frequency
0: <laughs> sure um, and
1: very counterintuitive you know
0: but, yeah and that that tracks locally so I mean our our coldest winter month January has gotten significantly warmer in the last 40 years however you know February 2021 significant Arctic outbreak uh, since late December 2017, I believe we probably have had at least seven, maybe 10 days where we haven't hit or gotten above zero for a high. Prior to that, we had maybe had like one day of that in the previous 20 years. So we've seen is some of that stuff yeah. is kind of cyclical, but we're still getting that really extreme cold.
1: Yeah, um, no, and, and last year, um, that, that pre-holiday outbreak was very, and I'm sure you got it pretty hard. Oh, too. yes,
0: we sure did. Uh, yeah. I would, I was out scooping snow I and mean, it wasn't a lot of snow, thankfully, but it was, you know, an inch, inch and a half that blew everywhere. And it was wind chill was at least 45 below and with, you know, 15 below air temperatures. Uh, I mean, thankfully, it was relatively short lived, but that was like our afternoon high on like December 21st or 2nd, whatever day that was, was like, I don't know, eight or nine below. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, <laughs> right, was, so it, and that was without much snow cover.
1: Right.
0: We'd had a yeah. snow cover. It would have been 10 below easily.
1: Even in Boston last year, and was we had a much milder winter than you guys had. We had our cold in February. We had our coldest day in six, 60 years in six de- you know six decades.
0: Oh sure, right.
1: Yeah. Again, yeah. no snow cover whatsoever, which is very unusual. Uh, it's right. The only time being like, you know, down in the minus ten range with no snow cover, and had you know had there been snow cover, would have been even colder. So. So, yeah, it was cyclical. I mean, the 80s had a lot of good cold air outbreaks. Um, but, <laughs> and then the 90s, they disappeared. Yeah. But again, you would think, uh, you know, so you could say, well, this is all cyclical. But again, climate change is supposed to be so strong I mean, that it should disrupt that cycle. <laughs> and whether it's cyclical or not, I mean, I, you know, I'm saying obviously there's a it's, there's a connection to the Arctic. But, um, you know, so... Uh, yeah, and this is uh, an area of active debate. Uh, so, uh, uh, but it, I think it has, you know, important, you know, implications for society. Because like that you talked about the February 2020 outbreak, I mean, you saw maybe, you know, a place like Nebraska is used to the extreme cold, but Texas is not. Right. I mean, you know, it, it wreaked havoc and, you know, uh, their infrastructure, you know, almost went to a complete collapse, of their energy sector, but, it, I mean, it came minutes away,
0: supposedly. Yeah, <laughs> so, no, they're, that part of the country. I mean, it was bad here, but, I mean, we're used to it being, we're, we're more put for extreme cold up here, and houses housing codes up here basically say, yeah, you have to have X amount of insulation, you know, So I mean, you have to build structures up here to withstand 20, 25 below air temperatures, because that occurs with, at least historically, some regularity. Yeah, down there they're they're not used to that, uh, at least not typically. Um, Yeah, even
1: here in in Boston we had that. That again, it was short. We had a lot of burst pipes, you know, and that's you know a lot of insurance loss uh, uh, because of that. Again, the the lack of snow cover made that worse. Oh, sure. That problem because the cold can penetrate deeper into the ground, and there were a lot of burst pipes. So. Yeah, so if you're stopped, you're saying, "Well, I need to only prepare for heat extremes and no longer for cold extremes," you know, and then you your investments are are um, you know appropriate appropriated based on that reasoning, then you know you're going to be become more vulnerable to cold extremes.
0: Sure. So. so something else that you've spent you know a lot of work on, and that I think this ties in very closely to Arctic application. Uh, so am I correct in kind of assuming that the Physical signal between increased Eurasian snow cover and extreme outbreaks of cold and some you know snowstorms in the central and eastern U.S. is is that really kind of tied toward the weakening of the polar vortex?
1: Yeah, so I mean, what is the connection? It's not. it's certainly Siberia is very far away from Lincoln or Boston. How can you know uh, what the snow in that in such a area so far away? How could that impact our weather here? Literally halfway around the globe. And uh, what we've argued is that it's through the polar vortex um, that if the polar vortex, is, the pole vortex is up in the stratosphere. Mm-hmm. So it's an area of low pressure, it spins around like a top. And if, um, if the polar vortex is strong, it's basically very circular in, in, in its configuration or shape it tends to be mild here in the U in the Eastern U S, but when it weakens and, you know, it's like that top kind of wobbling, and you know might take on a more just um uh, to, uh it's no longer circular it's um I'm trying to I'm sorry the word is escaping me here for a second but it, you know the, the the shape of it becomes it's
0: more elliptical
1: yeah it's more elliptical I mean I, the one that I've been focusing on most recently where it becomes elongated stretched sure. out you know more contorted I guess the shape is you know it certainly takes on more complexity yeah. and It
0: does yoga. It does
1: yoga, but certainly one one you know there are different shapes it can take. But what one of them is where you kind of it gets pulled at both ends, like a you know stretching of rubber bands. The analogy I like to use that tends to be associated with our more extreme, most extreme cold air outbreaks. You know that was the February twenty twenty one and the the last pre the last year that pre holiday outbreak Mm -hmm. in in December. Uh, Yeah, so what happens is snow cover and actually sea ice can team up to both, uh, weaken the pull, you know, lead to these disruptions or contortions in the polar vortex, uh, shape. And that's when we tend to get our coldest weather. Uh, sure. yeah. So I, you know, I don't try, you know, not to make it too complicated, but it has to do with, you know, wave. So, um, if, if they're, if the way if the wind is basically the jet stream which is in the troposphere and the pole vortex is in the layer above that stress the jet stream is kind of we say zonal in the business right it just flows in a straight line from west to east there are no waves there's very little energy associated with it yeah zonal it flow is boring why boring boring the, the country tends to get flooded with pacific you know mild air but if the, if the snow cover leads to uh you think of it like throwing a, a boulder in a stream. Now instead of going straight in one direction, it has to go around the boulder and and it, you get a much bigger wave in the atmosphere has much more energy. And that energy then will bang on the polar vortex and it's like the top hitting like a, a an obstacle hitting a wall or something on your desk. And now it starts, you know, the, the circulation really slows down and the top starts meandering. And that's when you get this these disruptions of the polar vortex and uh, you get the you know the, the severe winter weather follows with weather big extreme cold or big snowstorms.
0: Sure. Now I'm assuming these are, have occurred naturally through you know probably out the ages, but are, are we seeing an increased frequency of the weakening of the polar vortex, more stretching? Right.
1: So they occur naturally, right? You have um, you know kind of the waxing and waning of waves in the atmosphere, right? So when the waves in the atmosphere, especially over Eurasia, because that's the biggest naturally occurring wave in the atmosphere across the whole globe. If, if that gets bigger in magnitude, then you're more likely to get a polar vortex eruption. If it gets smaller in magnitude, you're likely to get a strong polar vortex. That happens naturally. But, but the argument is that Arctic amplification, which includes both less sea ice and more snow cover, shifts that probability to more in the larger waves across Eurasia. And again, I don't want to get too much in the weeds. Uh, I'm happy to do it, but <laughs> I don't want to bore everybody. Let's
0: just keep it simple for this.
1: All right. So, okay. So, yeah, so that happens, you know, so just, you know, it's like, again, it's like throwing a boulder or a bigger boulder in, this, in the stream of water that causes then the water has to, the stream of, you know, that flow through that stream has to go around meander around the boulder. Um, and that's cause that, that affects like a, a bigger wave. Uh, or if you you know you skimmed a pebble on a pond, right? You'd see these waves ripple away. So if you'd been a bigger pebble, you'd get bigger waves rippling rippling away. Um, and so yeah, we've definitely uh I think this is I feel pretty confident saying this. We've seen a shift in the in the frequency of, of sh- strong polar vortex states, which is getting fewer in numbers in the winter time and more disrupted polar vortex days or, you know, state of the polar vortex. I mean, it's a very clear shift. Uh, and that is not intuitive. Again, that I mean, cl- I think climate change just on its own doesn't really explain that. shift. Now, people might say, again, that's just noise, you know, natural variability. But I say, no, uh, I've been arguing and others argue, you know, type other similar type of arguments that that's related to um, this Arctic amplification.
0: Sure. Well, statistically, what you're finding is significant, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, there's been a statistical change in the, in the, yeah. You know, if the phase or like at a state of the pole, forward, there's, you know, less of the sh- very strong states and more of these disrupted, perturbed sure. states, weaker states.
0: Yeah. What I, what I find sort of interesting though, is that the global, you know, main forecast models, the European model GFS have at least have done a pretty reasonably good job at showing these coming seven, 10 days out. But the dynamic seasonal forecast models really just don't pick up on the signal at all, in my in my opinion.
1: Right. So, the, yeah, the models definitely struggle. Uh, and There's a point I try to make all the time. Um, so, yeah, they will get this whole coupling. First of all, they have a very hard time anticipating um, these disruptions more than a week or ten days out, mm-hmm. um, but even once, even when they start to get the disruption of the polar vortex, they the, the the this influence on our weather is also the models just don't complete don't get. So will you'll have a disruption of the polar vortex and it'll show no impact on our weather, whereas eventually it will lead to colder, snowier weather. But the models are very slow to pick that up. They get it eventually. So I was you know so even in the short term, if they're having struggles like a two weeks out. So for a seasonal forecast, it's just hopeless. <laughs> and if you get, you know, a, lo- a large number of these disruptions, or you get a very large one, a, a disruption of the polar vortex, that will influence the seasonal mean. And if the models have no clue what's going to happen in the during the whole winter season, it, you know, it's very difficult that, for them to get the the seasonal forecast correct.
0: Sure.
1: But again, you know, <laughs> where exactly, you know, different polar vortex disruptions the influences in different regions of the northern hemisphere so that's also really really important
0: sure you guys have had a lot more success with winter seasonal forecasts because you are uh factoring in this arctic amplification this increased uh, siberian snow cover um and you, to some degree i if i'm not mistaken you have actually predicted at least with some degree of accuracy, the cold anomalies that have occurred in central eastern U.S. the last 20 years that you know, the dynamic models haven't picked up on. So, I mean, do you think there's maybe some combination of statistical models and dynamic models that are sort of appropriate for forecasting um, in the winter season?
1: Yeah, no, I do. I definitely do. So, yeah, um, yeah, I feel like we have had success because we, I mean, the dynamical models are very... Um, dependent on the state or phase of El Nino, Southern Oscillation, ENSO. Um, And I like to say basically what the dynamical models are, climate change or kind of this universal warming Mm -hmm. plus whatever ENSO is doing. So last year was La Nina. The past three years were La Nina. This year is El Nino. Um, So basically it'll be warm everywhere, except if it's La Nina, it's cold in the Northwestern North America and if it's El Nino, it's cold in the southeastern U.S., uh, but otherwise, it's warm everywhere else. Sure. And I think that's just too much of an oversimplification. Sure. And I do think, you know, so I do think we we've had better success because we've included these Arctic signals or predictors. Um. And so I I, I think we can. So when I, I do things, and we use a statistical model. And I'm very I'm very much interested in machine learning or artificial intelligence. I think dynamical models coupled with machine learning, or artificial intelligence can lead to a uh, definitely a better forecast, you know, uh, maybe help correct uh, these bias, biases in in these dynamical models. And we also had a paper very recently uh, with a group of some students, some you know people from Microsoft and MIT. University of Toronto showing that uh, if you use machine learning to bias correct models, you you end up with a better subseasonal forecast. So the the time horizon of like two to six weeks, I, I think there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, well that makes
0: good sense to me. And realistically, that two to six week time frame, um, a, lot, a lot of important decisions are made in commerce in that time.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, I hear all the time, you know, we we you know. One day forecast, or you know, like the Texas freeze, where they maybe get a few days advance warning, that's just not enough for people to prepare. That they, they need like multiple weeks, mm-hmm. uh, especially with these like with a stretch pole vortex event, or you know where it elongates, that is associated with the most extreme winter weather, you know in the in the central and eastern U.S. If you had like a three week heads up. <laughs> Uh, you know, again, to get the magnitude would be still very difficult, but you know, uh, uh, but maybe it can get. You know, maybe it shows you. Uh, you know, there's going to be an exceptional event. I mean, actually, we we have a machine learning model that's running experimentally. It did show a very hot, you know, very extreme cold event for December last year uh, that um, coincided with that. Um, you know, that that pre-holiday uh, extreme cold. I mean, if you had that kind of heads up. Right. And that was already, you know, in early December before the dynamical models were showing it. Um, yeah, I, I think that would be very useful for you know emergency management planners and, and, and such. I mean, municipalities, you know, governments on different levels, you know, certainly this local in the state.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it allows for more optimized risk management and planning. Yeah. So, yeah, the CPC just kind of, they released an updated winter forecast, I think, a couple of days ago. And it's, you know, to me, it just looks like um, 100% so, But yeah, on some level, I get, I mean, we're heading toward we're in a stronger El Nino. And, you know, like what I've kind of told people around here is like right now, I don't have enough other evidence to say that what they're forecasting isn't what's the most likely outcome. But I mean, clearly, if we start seeing, so I, I know one of your uh, recent blogs, you mentioned that they're, was you know some possibility of weakening of the polar vortex in you know late late part of December, early January. If that happens, and you know maybe early January we uh, see some significant cold outbreaks of the eastern U.S. And
1: well, it takes two uh, weeks for that signal to get to the surface. But so sure. even in early January, uh, we wouldn't see the cold till mid to late December, actually. Yeah, sure. So sure. with a stretch polar vortex, the the impact is almost immediate. But with these larger disruptions, it takes two weeks.
0: Okay, yeah. Do you are you um are you still thinking that's uh, some sort of a possibility this winter?
1: I think so. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, the models were predicting a, a pattern that was very favorable for a large disruption of the vortex. They've kind of backed off of it, so uh, a lot of uncertainty. You know, I'm one who's always kind of first to criticize too much reliance dependence on 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 ENSO El Nino or La Niña. But this is a big, this is looking like a very large El Nino event. So I do think it cannot be ignored. Right. Um, but I mean, I do think the pole vortex will play an important role.
0: Sure. Uh, you so, know, traditionally when, in El Nino, it seems like we kind of have a, a northern shift in the polar jet stream and a stronger subtropical jet. You know the, sub, the stronger subtropical jet. I mean, that seems like that's already starting to show up a little bit here in the U.S. There will be soon. Um, do you have any th- thoughts about uh, maybe eh, maybe there's a possibility that with warmer sea surface temperatures in parts of the you know Western Pacific that maybe you know, we get a little bit more amplified polar jet streak that would maybe create some heavier, bigger snowstorms in the central and eastern U.S. this winter? You polar vortex notwithstanding.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I do think the, the the like these ocean heat waves, however you want to call them, is a bit of a wild card. Mm-hmm. Now, our understanding of the coupling between ocean temperatures in the extratropics, so mid latitudes to high latitudes, um, you know, its influence on our, on the on the weather and the you know atmospheric circulation is uh, not well understood, and um, so I you know I don't think we can speak with much confidence, but. They you know, you tend to get, you know, ridges of high pressure over regions of warmer than normal temperatures. Now, it's a chicken and egg problem. Is the, the warmer temperatures there because of the high pressure, or the, the high pressure bring the, you know, the, the warmer temperature brought the high pressure? So, but if we do get you know high, so right now the warm, the the focus of the kind of the bullseye of warming in the North Pacific is in the central North Pacific, kind of south of the Aleutians we did get this ridge of high pressure in that region, you know, downstream you get northerly flow and cold air. So it could bring colder weather to North America, um, given that it's kind of not right along the coast, but further West, close, you know, closer to the Dateline. Um, I and mean, that I could maybe favor colder weather in the Western North America, Western U.S. But yeah, so we'll have to see. I, I, I do think it can be a player. I'm, you know, I don't feel confident in, attributing what that in, that influence or impact will be but I, I something I'm keeping an eye on especially in the later winter we kind of things kind of phase lock <laughs> you know really could make for a pretty stable pattern later in the winter so you uh,
0: so, like last part of January February really. yeah
1: so yeah certainly like February into March maybe late January yeah some at those times it persistence seems to grow in the and later in the season I think the surface conditions kind of couples with the atmosphere to re- kind of you get a positive feedback or they reinforce each other and things. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's something I would look at. I think it's too early in the season to think about, you know, the stock, I don't think it will could be having an influence, but I think if it really has a big influence, like long duration it will be later in the season.
0: Sure. Yeah. Speaking of the month of February and, you know, changes the last couple of decades, traditionally our coldest winter month was always January or some, you know, sometimes it was December. Very, very rarely was it ever the month of February. That's actually pretty common now for February to be our coldest month and for sometimes that to extend into early March, and then you get like a you know just a really rapid shift to much, much warmer, you know, weather by mid-late March, early April. But um, do you think the delayed effect of some of the cold is also related to some of these changes in the you know Eurasian subcontinent and the you know, lack of sea ice?
1: Yeah, I mean I do think there's a seasonal shift. I I fully uh, fully, fully on board with this idea that winter starts later. I think December has become less of a winter month and more of a fall month. I mean, this yeah. you know can follows the tr- seasonal transition. I think September is more of a summer month now than in, than yeah. a fall month. I mean, September's <laughs>
0: August light, at least in our area now. And... Yeah,
1: I, I fully. I, yeah, I feel like yeah, September is more like August than what we you know you and I probably think of. You know, September used to be like you used to get those first really cool, crisp days and, uh, you know, yep. dry, these dry air messes and yep. yeah, you can get the humidity and it can be, you know, certainly in the eighties, no problem. Now, even nineties in September, I, I, you know, so I do think September needs to be kind of thought of more of a summer or, or, you know, much less of a transitional month. Um, and then December as well, you know, more of a fall month and uh, less of a winter month. And then, um, yeah, and then, I, I okay, because I think because the, the the globe and the whole, you know, kind of environment now, the background state is so warm, it's very hard to get meaningful cold weather without um, involvement of the polar vortex. That's my explanation for the ship. And the polar vortex only really gets in very active in, in starting in January.
0: Oh, okay. Well, and that, so, that makes, yeah. Makes yeah, sense. so
1: in December, it's, you know, we can't get these stretched events, in december but those tend to make for very short duration colder outbreak they can be intense but short You yeah, like the larger disruptions where it can really influence the weather kind of shift to colder weather over, over multiple weeks even multiple months and those don't really start until early january so and again it takes at least two weeks for that to get that signal to get to the surface no, so well, that, that's my explanation you know for this seasonal shift yeah,
0: what you were just describing, would that, would that have been more of like 2018-19? Because you know, we had that, uh, what I think, you know, the, the big, you know, the, and of course the media tends to freak out about polar vortex. I think a lot of times they um kind of get the concept wrong or explain it, you know, in a more somewhat of an incorrect fashion. But you had that huge polar outbreak across the Midwest and eastern U.S. at like the end of January 2019. We were on the western edge of that, but then, you know, like about a week later, it just, it got cold and it, we didn't get above 36 degrees here for like six weeks. So we had all sorts of snow and then it culminated in that bomb cyclone in mid-March that, you know, put two inches of rain on a foot of snow and really froze the soils. So and we had a lot of river flooding and, you know, that was a catastrophic event for this state.
1: Right. Yeah. So I, I think, yeah, I, th- I think 2018-19 is a good example of that where. Uh, I, I think, the you know, December was quite mild. But then we had a large pole vortex disruption in early January. It took about two weeks for it to get down. There was a historic cold air outbreak mm-hmm. uh, I think towards the end of January. But it stayed very cold in western U.S. I think Montana had its coldest February on record, if I remember correctly.
0: Yeah, I think parts of eastern Montana and western North Dakota, it was the coldest. February on record or, was, or was certainly one of the coldest Februarys on record in like Williston and uh Glasgow Montana places like yeah. that.
1: Right again and this all ties into our you know how we even started the whole conversation. Sure. Uh, but yeah, so that I think that's you know I think we've seen a lot of examples of that it uh where we've had a you know milder December and um uh you know then all of a sudden there's a kind of this seems like you know it reverses on a dime. I, my joke is you know, we should make the first official start of, you know, first first day of winter, the official first day of winter, Martin Luther King weekend, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not, not whether it be December 1st, which is the meteorological winter, or December 21st, which is the astronomical winter. I just feel like we don't, it's, you know, again, we can't get it. I'm not, I'm not saying it can't happen, and it sort of could happen this December, but um, really sustained cold and, and snowstorms it really takes the involvement of the pole vortex, which, um, doesn't really, that season really doesn't begin till January. And that, no, that's not a new phenomenon. I mean, that's, that's kind of always been the case. I mean, there are always exceptions, but
0: sure. Well, we're coming up on time here, but, but before I let you go, where can we find, uh, some of your work and, uh, like, are you still keeping the blog?
1: I have a weekly blog. So, uh, for Monday, uh, those that can't wait it, it, it is we call the early look you have to pay for it but the blog with an update is made publicly available to everybody on uh wednesday so every week so monday is the early look you have to subscribe but on wednesday you get uh get to read it for free
0: you can find that and
1: I'm, I'm pretty pretty active on twitter or x however you prefer to call it um at Judah47, so, uh, and I certainly, when I post the blog and when I update it, I, I, I certainly sent out a tweet, on, you know, announcing it with the link to the blog. But if you did it like Judah Cohen Arctic Oscillation or, or Arctic blog, I mean, it would probably be the first thing that came up in your Google search. So it should be, I mean, you know, giving you the URL would be a little bit long, but you could easily find it with a Google search, which Judah Cohen Arctic, I think would work as well, but.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Judah, for your time, and you have a good rest of
1: your day. All right. Thank you, Ryan. It was a pleasure speaking with you. I always love, love talking shop with you. So,
0: Yep. Same here. Thanks you. Thank you for having me. Bye, Judith.